I'm in the Rob Lister School of Health this morning. That is to say, I feel fine, but my voice is doing crazy things. So um, I may have to reach for the water here periodically. So one thing I wanted to mention, the second thing I want to mention is today is Cynthia and Mike Burbage's last Sunday with us. And uh, we've already said goodbye to them on a Sunday night, but uh, we love you both. And we're going to miss you, and the Lord bless you as, as you both go. They anchor that spot right there. Someone's going to have to come and can't replace the Burbages, but at least fill those chairs right there. Uh, third thing that I want to mention this morning as we turn to Luke chapter 11, it's actually, um, I want to read something to you. It's a letter that I wrote uh, yesterday to you as I reflected on the decision uh, to which Jeff referred the other day. Dear Grace family, uh, Friday the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, a decision that we gratefully welcome. Since then there has been an outpouring of joy and relief as well as incredulity and rage. As we wade through it all, here are some thoughts to help us navigate our way forward. Number one, God loves life. God is the giver and sustainer of life. As ones who have been blessed with life, as well as new life in Christ, we want to advocate for it, especially since Satan's aim is to destroy it. God loves peace. God's spirit is one of peace. Sadly, Friday's decision has intensified the conflict in our country. While we advocate for life, may we do so in a manner that is peaceful and leads to peace. God speaks. God spoke our world and his word into being. Jesus is God's word made flesh. As ones created in God's image, we speak too. We speak to each other, and as advocates for those who cannot speak for themselves, including the unborn, as well as women in crisis. In the coming days, may our speech, both spoken and written, bring life and peace to those around us. God forgives. God forgives sin, and that's good news because we all have sinned and suffer for it. There are those among us who, in some way, suffer the ongoing effects of an unplanned pregnancy or even abortion. May we be ready to hear their broken hearts, respond with the love of Christ, and forgive as he has forgiven us. Thankfully, grace promotes and enjoys a culture of life. Over the years, scores of adopted and fostered children have thrived among our church family. May we continue to be that kind of church, advocating for and supporting God-given life from beginning to end, while especially upholding and guarding the life that was given to us at Calvary by Christ. Every blessing. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do rejoice in life. We uh, rejoice in Friday's uh, decision that was released. We pray that it would prevail in ways that we could not have imagined by way of your 
gracious hand. May we be agents, loving agents, peaceful agents, forgiving agents, and all of that. Lord, hear our prayer. May we continue to be a church that advocates for and is a haven of life, especially life in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Luke chapter 11. We're in week number three, and we find ourselves today beginning in verse 24 and going down to verse 36. So follow along with me as uh, I read. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of, the, the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at, preaching of Jonah, at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Thus far, God's word. Well, if the book of Luke is clear about anything, it is clear about Jesus' authority. His authority over the natural world is seen, for example, when he calms the storm in chapter number 8, when he feeds the 5,000 in chapter number 9. Uh, as seen in his authority over the physical world, such as when he heals the paralytic in chapter 5, and even brings back a child from the dead in chapter number 8. It is especially seen, Jesus' authority that is, over the spiritual world when he puts down the adversary's assault on himself uh, back in chapter number four, as well as the adversary's assaults on many others, especially seen in chapters eight, nine, and 10. 
What's, what's vital that we grasp, though, here is the importance of Jesus' authority over the spiritual world. Because not only is Jesus a spiritual being, but so are we. Jesus said, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. John 4, 24. So the ground of our relationship with God is a spiritual one. Just like our gathering today. The purpose of our singing is that we might be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians chapter 5. The, the purpose of preaching is that we might live in the Spirit the way God does, 1 Peter 4. The purpose of our fellowship together is to be built up as a spiritual house, a dwelling for God, 1 Peter 2, 1 Corinthians 3. Now we're here in Luke chapter 11, and Jesus is continuing to address matters of spiritual importance concerning himself as well as others. Two weeks ago in verses 1 through 13, Jesus made the point that, well, asking how to pray is important. That's in the very first verse of our chapter. Asking for the Holy Spirit, he mentions that in chapter, no, verse 13, is even more important because it's the Spirit who enables our praying and answers our prayers. So as Eric Twisselman put it to us on that morning, prayer without God's Spirit is an empty incantation. It doesn't go any further than the room in which you find yourself. It bounces right off the ceiling and back down on your head. Twisselman went on. He said it's like trying to drive a car without an engine, and there are no Fred Flintstones in the kingdom of God. I've been thinking about Fred in that regard ever since. Last week in verses 14 through 23, Jesus described the adversary as a spiritual strong man, but he declared himself to be even stronger, able to not only attack but overcome the adversary. Now last week he proved that in time there in verse 14, but at the cross he proved it for all time because that's where Jesus destroyed the one who has power uh, uh, over death, or, I'm sorry, destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, so that he might bring us to God. Hebrews 2, 1 Peter 3. So this unparalleled spiritual prowess that Jesus has <clears throat> uh, gives him the right to declare, and, and we saw this in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, when it comes to you and Jesus, and Kenny was very clear on this, when it comes to you and Jesus, when it comes to anybody, for that matter, and Jesus, there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. You're either with him or you're against him. And that's the point on which Jesus ended last week, and that's the point that he's uh, uh, going to tease out, uh, on which he's going to expand this morning. First, what it means to stand against Jesus, and we'll see that in verses 24 through 26, 
as well as what it means to stand for Jesus. And we'll see that in verses 27 through 36. Now, I just want to flesh out very briefly the importance of these two points. To, to stand against Jesus is really to stand in spiritual peril. Because as God puts it to the church at Ephesus, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That, that is that this world in which we live is more than we take in with just our five senses. Uh, I, I remember when I was a, uh, I think I was a junior in high school and I, it was the first time I'd ever been away from home with just my friends. And uh, we were in the mountains at a cabin up late at night talking about deep things. And I remember a friend saying to me, if I can't see it, I don't believe it. Well, the, the scripture seems to indicate that there's a lot more to believe than that which we can see. And Paul goes on here in, in Ephesians. It's because we, we wrestle against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil that are in heavenly places. In other words, to stand against Jesus is to, in a very real sense, stand in league with these spiritual forces of darkness and evil that not only hate God, but hate you and me. But, on the other hand, to stand with Jesus is to not be in peril, but rather to stand in spiritual safety. Because as God put it to the church at Rome, all that's dark, all that's evil, all that's bent on destroying us cannot separate us from the love of God. It's impossible. It can't be done. It's a lock. Now, notice that all that's dark and evil is not impersonal. It's personal. We, we saw that in the passage that I just read. We're going to see it again here. But, well, hear God's word. It begins, not with what, but who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, well, I think of that as a what. No, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. In fact, the word could be translated super conquerors through him who loved us. For neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers, height, depth nor any other creatures mm, isn't that interesting? shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 35 through 39. That's good news of great joy for all people, right? That's something of which you can be certain. You can take it to the bank. That's exactly what the purpose of this gospel is about. That's Luke's aim for the book. So let's begin with what it means to stand against Jesus. And uh, Jesus speaks to that in verses 24 through 
26. Now, on the one hand, uh, standing against Jesus can, can involve actively opposing him. And there are certainly examples of that in Jesus' day contained throughout the book of Luke, uh, ranging from those, to wish the, uh, from those who wish to harm him, we see that beginning as early as chapter 4, all the way to those who wish to kill him, uh, some of them being political, chapter 13, finally uh, among the religious establishment in chapter 22. But there are also examples of those in our day who actively oppose Jesus. And, and, and there's a book full of examples that are uh, clear and compelling in Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Now, I have that on my mind because uh, the elders have been reading it this quarter and will be discussing it this Tuesday night. And I would recommend it to all of you. It doesn't change the world in which we live, but it certainly helps to frame it up in a way that you can understand it and see how, um, well, um, everything from political to psychological to philosophical forces have actively opposed Jesus and really come together in an unprecedented way in our time to, um, to soundly put us in a post-Christian world. Uh, I might recommend the, uh, it's a new kind of abridged version of that volume called Strange New World. I believe it's the same message, a little shorter, more compact. So on the one hand, standing against Jesus can mean actively opposing him. On the other hand, it can be passively opposing him. And that, that's actually what Jesus puts before us here. So notice that in, in verse 24, he speaks there of an unclean spirit who has gone out of a person. And then in verse 25, he indicates that whatever spiritual dirt and disorder uh, was left behind has been swept and put in order. So the house is clean. But instead of filling that space with God's Holy Spirit, the person leaves it open, thereby making it possible for the unclean spirit to uh, return, uh, reassume residence with some of his uh, rowdy compadres, and, and it makes matters worse than it was before. So clearly, spiritual openness, uh, neutrality about Jesus, the things of Jesus, is not an option in God's economy. As, as Jesus put it, if you're not with me, then you're against me. The largest house on our street stands empty. been empty as long as we've lived there for almost six and a half years now and it has been empty years beyond that. Now on the one hand the house is swept and ordered. That is to say the mail's picked up, the lawn's mowed, the Christmas lights go up at Christmas time but nobody lives there and and the problem with a vacant house, and this is on the other hand, is that if nobody lives there, somebody will. 
And that's what happened to the house on our street. First came one squatter, then came another squatter, then came another squatter, and then the drugs, and then the theft, and then other illegal activities. It's the same thing that just happened at a vacated rental home in another state owned by a member of our congregation. If no one lives in a vacated house, somebody will. And in the same way, if the Holy Spirit is not at home in your heart, then you've left it open for somebody else to come in and take up residence. And you don't want that. You don't want that. I was jotting down what different scholars had to say about that condition, and they, they were to the point. One, one scholar says, they create disorder. Another one says, they make things worse. The third one, they're very hard to overcome. Which naturally leads to a couple of questions. So I want to kind of do a, a sidebar here. Question number one is this. Can a believer be demon-possessed? Or to put it another way, if I have the Holy Spirit living in me, can I have an unclean spirit living in me as well? And the answer is no. In fact, it's an unequivocal no. Now, I'm, I'm going to mention some scriptures here, and if you're taking notes, you're going to want to pull up your sleeve a little bit and make sure you get these references now so that you can reflect on them later. If you're using a device, get ready to move your thumbs here, okay? Here's why. Because you've been delivered. Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You've overcome. 1 John 4, 3 and 4. You have overcome the spirit of the Antichrist because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You're a new creature. 1 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, then he's a new creation. Everything's passed away. See, everything has become new. You're God's house. You're God's house. And what agreement has Christ with Belial? This is 2 Corinthians 6, 15 and 16. What agreement has Christ with the adversary? None, but why? Because we are the temple of the living God. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people. And there are other passages that assure us that we're born again. 1 Peter 1, 3, and 23. We're partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1, 4. And we have been and are being renewed, transformed into something that we could not have otherwise ever become. Ephesians 4, 23. So, again, can a devil possess a believer? Can an unclean spirit share space with the Holy 
spirit. Can the strong man overtake the stronger man? And the answer is no. But that leads to the second question. And the second question is this. Can a believer be demon oppressed? Not possessed, but oppressed. Or another way is, if I have the Holy Spirit living within, can I also have an unclean spirit attacking me from without? And the answer to that is, Yes, in fact, it's to be expected by everyone in whom Christ lives. Scripture tells us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Since your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's a toothless lion, but he's prowling around and he's looking. And that's why we've been given the armor of God which includes the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. All the fiery darts. One size fits all. Your proclivity may be this. Another's proclivity may be that. But this shield helps defend those darts. Ward them off. We also have weapons for warfare that are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. I had a fellow telling me recently that one of the problems the Russians have had in this war with Ukraine is drones. That the Ukrainians have drones that follow Russian troops right into these fortresses that they've created for themselves. And that's exactly what the Lord does for us in combating the adversary. He destroys strongholds. We've also been given instructions such as abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And that, that term there, wage war, is... Um, the one from which we get the English term, strategize. Abstain from passions of the flesh, which strategize against your soul that are not impersonal, but personal forces that consider where you're weakest and attack you there. Abstain from that, the Lord says. Uh, 1 Peter 2.11, give no opportunity to the devil, Ephesians 4.27. Resist the devil, and he'll flee, James 4, 7. So, in sum, can an evil spirit, an unclean spirit, possess one in whom the Holy Spirit lives? The answer is no. Because greater is the one who is in us than the one who is in the world. But can an unclean spirit oppress one in whom the Holy Spirit lives? The answer is yes. But God has given us armor in order to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. In fact, within that space, he makes it clear three times over. We've got armor, and we can stand firm, immovable, steadfast in him. Now, all of this naturally leads 
to the second thing on which Jesus expands in this passage. The first was, what does it mean to stand against Jesus? Now we'll see what it means to stand for Jesus, and that's in verses 27 through 36. Beginning with the example of a woman who did just that. She stood up for Jesus. Now, unlike those who, who were quietly whispering their accusations against Jesus back in verses 14 through 17, remember Jesus, as he's speaking these things, is actually going toe-to-toe with the religious establishment. This woman publicly raises her voice there in verse 27 and pays tribute to the Lord. Now, on the one hand, her, her compliment was proverbial. That is to say, it was common uh, for the day, praising a person by praising his mother. Your mother must be wonderful to have raised a son like you. That's essentially what she's saying. But on the other hand, her compliment was prophetic because it echoes the angel Gabriel's blessing on Mary back in chapter 1, verse 28, when he said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then Elizabeth's words to Mary in 142, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then Mary's words concerning herself in 148, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So Jesus doesn't deflect that praise that's, that's laid on his mother, but he accepts it and then immediately and emphatically reframes it by essentially saying this, Mary's blessed, but she wasn't blessed because she was my mother. Mary's blessed because she heard and kept God's word. And back in chapter eight, hearing and keeping God's word was the difference between feast and famine in the parable of the sower. It's the difference between membership in Jesus' human family, which was temporary, and his spiritual family, which is eternal. Hearing and keeping God's word are the two basic building blocks of discipleship, the things that help us to stand for Jesus. James Edwards puts it like this. Discipleship isn't simply about eliminating bad habits, you know, holding each other accountable. Okay, don't do this next week. Well, it is that, but it's more. It's about filling the void inside us with Jesus himself. Hearing and obeying his word transforms life according to the criteria of God's kingdom. And where the kingdom is present, there is a no vacancy for other kingdoms, dominions, and lords. So standing for Jesus doesn't simply mean aligning yourself with him, you know, as you're being admitted to the hospital and filling out the forms and religion and you check Christian, or sympathizing with him, you know, citing the golden rule as your credo, uh, remembering him on those important dates, Christmas, Easter, and others. Rather, standing for Jesus means being a disciple of Jesus, hearing and keeping his word. And that's what we're about here at Grace, right? Discipleship. Hearing God's word. We're being established this morning. We're being equipped this morning. 
so that we can keep God's word by engaging and evangelizing our world. Now, as the crowds begin to swell, Jesus begins to explain what that means. First, what it means to hear God's word, and we see that in verses 29 through 32. And to hear God's word basically means to take it seriously, to take it at face value for what it is. And he gives his audience two examples of those who took it seriously. Example number one, Jonah. He spoke God's word to the people of Nineveh, Gentiles, in fact. They took it seriously. And they were bad dudes. If you've ever been to the British Museum, you've got two or three rooms of, in some cases, Nineveh reassembled. Now, the British were good at that. They'd go and disassemble an ancient city and come back and reassemble it in one of their museums. And the stuff that's in there, wow, you can tell these guys are tough. But they took God's word seriously. Example number two, Solomon. He spoke God's wisdom to the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, also a Gentile, and she took it seriously. 1 Kings 10. Jesus' point in doing so was this. The one about whom Jonah preached and Solomon spoke. The one in whom the Ninevites and the queen of the south believed without ever having seen. That one stood before them on this day here in Luke chapter 11, and they didn't even believe it. They didn't even believe it. And they weren't Gentiles. So they should have recognized Jesus as implied by the statements at the end of verses 31 and 32. And they wanted signs. They wanted more signs. They'd already received a bunch already, but they wanted more. So on that day, Jesus pronounced them to be evil and added that on the last day, Jonah and the queen of the south would declare them to be condemned. Those to whom the promise was given, those to whom the prophets were sent, those to whom everything had been sent, but in the end they had nothing because they had entirely missed the point. To stand up for Jesus means to take his word seriously. Do you take his word seriously? Here's a little diagnostic for you. And it, it rises up out of the passage here. Let me give it to you. It's just three, three points. Diagnostic number one. Do you receive God's word as if it's real? That is, not disconnected from reality, but essential to it. The Ninevites did. The Queen of Sheba did. They seriously considered what was spoken to them. Diagnostic number two. Do you receive God's word as if it's applicable? Not something to be read and forgotten, but something to which you must respond. The Ninevites did. The Queen of Sheba did. They seriously responded to what they had heard. Diagnostic number three. Do you receive God's word as if it's eternal? That's of, as if it's of lasting value? with deep implications. Ninevites did, Queen of Sheba did, and they'll seriously and solemnly testify to it on the last day. Before this generation, 
and us as well. We'll be there for it. Well, Jesus not only explains what it means to hear God's word, but second, what it means to keep God's word. And it's with this that we bring the plane in for a landing this morning, verses 29 through 32. And simply put, to keep God's word is to do God's word. To do it. And to do God's word is, as Kenny put it last week, to join Jesus in his work of gathering, freeing people from Satan's kingdom and leading them into Christ's kingdom. So how do we join Jesus in this work of gathering? Well, take a look at verse 33, where he says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, hide it under a bushel, no, but on a stand so that those who enter may see it. Now, the light to which Jesus refers could be God's word written, Psalm 119, 105, or God's word incarnate, Jesus himself, who was prophesied to be the light of the world, Isaiah 49, 6. Either way, to possess that light requires that you not hide it, but you lift it up and use it in the work of gathering, in the work of looking around and helping others move to Christ. That'd be a great grace group question for this afternoon. How am I going to use God's word this week or the testimony of Jesus in my life as a light to encourage others toward Jesus? Because to hide the light will leave you in the dark on the last day. That's what's implied there at the end of verse 35. But according to verse 36, to shine the light will leave you, and by God's grace, others around you, full of light, having no part in the dark, wholly bright in the end. So, where do you stand? Do you stand against Jesus, or do you stand for Jesus? All the things about which we've talked today, connected to standing for Jesus, hearing his word, obeying his word, bathing in light and free from darkness on the last day. All those things begin when your heart becomes Christ's home. So what's your heart like this morning? Is it vacant? Is it cluttered? Either way, why don't you invite him in? There's no better day to do that than today. And there's no better time to do it than right now. You can do it right where you're seated. Or if you'd like to pray with somebody, there'll be a person there and another one over there after the sermon, uh, after the service, who'd be happy to pray with you. Let's close in prayer. So, Lord, we pray. that you would rule in our lives. For those in whose heart Christ lives, I pray that he would take greater prominence in his presence. And for those in in whose hearts Christ does not reside, I pray that he would take up residence today. The door would be opened, that he would be invited in. And that today, not next weekend, but this weekend, would be Independence Day. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.